0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Vancouver, Washington, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Vancouver, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Vancouver. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Hi, this is James Orr. The following is a recording of a class I recorded way back in June of 2021. So why am I publishing a class that's over a year old on October 24th, 2022? Well, over the last month, I've had several people suggest me or ask me if in our current real estate market, a real estate market where prices are up a lot, interest rates are up a lot, demand has cooled off quite a bit, rents are up, but not that much. Income is up, but not that much, and inflation is definitely here and likely to continue until the world. And yes, there is a worldwide inflation issue, not just in the U.S., until that gets under control. So if in that type of real estate market, should they even be considering buying properties? For example, yesterday I got the following email from a client. Quote, so what's your advice to buyer clients right now? Wait for prices to fall? Buy now but with cash? Use those builder incentive loans? Watch TV with the dog? end quote. My response to them was, watch the Is Nomad Dead class. That's still my answer. And so I figured I might share with you the class that I feel is a really solid start to answer the question, should I even be thinking about investing in real estate right now with the market, especially the real estate market in its current state? So one more thing before I share with you the class recording. While the answer I gave in the class is appropriate for today's real estate market there is some additional nuance that I should and probably will take some time to add in future content I put out. So be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for that. And here's the original class recording. Enjoy. Well, good evening and welcome everyone. This is your host for one of the final meetings ever, at least for now, maybe ever. This is uh, the not the penultimate. Next week will be the penultimate meeting. This is the penultimate, penultimate. The third to last meeting that we're ever going to do. So this is going to be, is Nomad dead? Rest in peace, Nomad. It was a good run while it lasted, but it's done. So a uh, couple of announcements. Uh, upcoming classes, you'll notice there's not a lot in the schedule because I'm not doing it anymore. So uh, next week... I am teaching. I told Brian, uh, "Don't worry about it. I know you're busy. I will take care of this." Analyzing single-family homes, condos, townhomes, and multifamily. Not a hundred percent sure what's going to be in that class yet, because I haven't written it. However, I think it's going to be comparing, analyzing deals. What you put in different fields if you're analyzing single-family home, condo, townhome, multifamily. I don't know. Maybe it'll be like a presentation with a bunch of like tables for if it's a single family home, we usually use this range. And here's why If it's a condo. We usually use this. If it's a duplex, we usually use this. If it's three or four units, we usually use this. Or if it's a big apartment building, we usually use this for the spreadsheet. It might be something like that, or I don't know, maybe that's where it'll end up. We'll have to see. That's next week, June 16th. Wow. It's really coming up quick. Then after that, the final class. The last one, I'm going to go out with a, uh, a kind of a down note, at least maybe it's a down note, and that is, are we in a bubble? This will sort of be like, you know, I'm leaving, it's over, hope you guys do well. This is my last prediction. Are we in a bubble? James says this. We'll see. To be determined. Will the real estate market crash? That's the name of the class. We'll see how it goes. That's going to be June 23rd. And you will notice James and Tammy's sabbatical celebration, possible retirement, that has been canceled. Not the sabbatical is being canceled. The class has been canceled. Sabbatical is on. It is totally on. This is sort of like, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't quite experience this, but this is what I imagine. Senior year, you've already been accepted to college. All your grades are posted. Last week of school. Are you really going to class? Probably not. That's, that's kind of my guess as to what's going on, but I don't know. To be determined. Uh, So yeah, yeah, school is out for summer. It's exactly right, Austin. But it's even more so. It's not just school is out for summer. It's like school is out. What's the the lyric? School is out forever. (laughs) It's like you're done. I mean, you're totally exactly Nathan. You got it. That's exactly what's going on. So it's sort of like that, right? Like, do I really need to do like a, a, a celebration class? I mean, come on. the celebration is the sabbatical. So there you go. Quit saying forever. I I, I really don't know if it is forever. I honestly don't know. It's not like I'm trying to be vague and kind of like do a little uh, sleight of hand or anything like that. We are definitely taking off three months. I think there's a really, really good chance that that turns into some variation of six months. Um, Maybe just, you know, uh, pop our head up for air. Any clients need anything. Otherwise, we're going back into the sabbatical for another three months through the end of the year. And I, if I had to handicap it at this point, I, I'd say 10%, 10%. That's done forever. We'll see how it goes. Down. All right, those are upcoming classes. And there's nothing else in the calendar. Like, go check the NCREG website. There's nothing else up there. There's no more coming. That's all you got. So, you know, for one of these last classes, I, I, I don't know. I have a, I'm a big believer in uh, rewarding promptness like people that are on time and show up on time and do the right thing. I'm almost tempted to like do something really special for people that actually show up for the six o'clock kind of like start of the class instead of the 6.05, 6.10, 6.15, sometimes 6.30, sometimes seven o'clock, people that roll in. Occasionally I'll see someone like uh, RSVP and register for the webinar at like 7.40, like as if they're gonna go and join the webinar at that time. I'm like, really? you're showing up like with the last 20 minutes there you go so all right so introductions via chat if you would be so kind for one of the last times uh please make sure you switch over to all panelists and attendees and then who are you and where are you from and do you believe nomad is dead i, I mean you know a part of this is uh what what is it i i do believe in fairies or where you like you knock your feet together, or sprinkle dust, or whatever—I don't even know what the thing is. But you know, do you believe no man is dead? And if you want to throw in why or why not, please do. It. Go ahead. Go ahead. There you go. Figure that out. Uh, and then, of course, if you do have questions throughout the webinar, please do use the chat window. I—I uh, I actually look forward to some questions. I think it's an interesting thing. Keeps it lively. Keeps me on my toes. I get to realize that I'm not just talking to myself. So. Uh, Yeah. Mike's like, I don't know if it's dead. That's why I'm here. I'm here for you to tell me if it's dead. Oh man. I could go off on a tangent about that comment right there, Mike. I mean, really you're relying on me to tell you if it's dead or not. Oh man. I should go off on a tangent. I'm not going to though. I'm going to be nice. There you go. Here to learn. Nope. If people are saying, nope, it's not dead. (laughs) We shall see. Right. We shall see. All right. Uh, this is my new like little warning slide. I, I like this. There was a, an attorney that did some continuing education. Tammy sent this over to me and a friend of mine. And I kind of liked it so much I uh, I kind of uh, commandeered it. I, I borrowed it. So it's largely his. So uh, why you should not consider anything I say as advice or even reliable information or education. <laughs> Oh man, wait to the end to tell you this. Hey, I'm I'm probably not your realtor. For some of you online, I am your realtor, but I'm probably not your realtor for most of you guys. Uh, I'm not your attorney. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a CPA. I'm not your advisor. So uh, I'm not doing this. This is not advice for you, like customized or personalized. Uh, Facts do vary greatly. (laughs) So I can tell you something and it could be absolutely true in this really narrow context, this really narrow kind of like space where it exists but uh, it could vary a lot depending on who it is and what's going on and what's going on there. Chances are, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so there you go. How's that for a disclaimer? Chances are good. I just don't have a freaking clue. I'm not, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I don't always get good sleep and I may be fuzzy brained So there you go. And you know, allergies have kicked in. I don't know if it's allergies have kicked in for you guys, but man, like to, like maybe yesterday or today, it's just rough. Like the allergy is like definitely headachey, fuzzy, headed. Or maybe maybe it's something else. I don't know. I'd have to see about that. I'm easily confused. Maybe you are too. <laughs> so there you go. That's my new disclaimer. Oh, there you go. Oh boy. Okay. Is nomad dead? I am your host, James Ora, real estate broker. At least for now. Uh, there we go. Uh, well, I guess we had some questions. I, I assume that there are no crazy questions. Uh, na, 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 people introduce it, that's awesome. you like to talk to this, but are you willing to repeat? Do you recommend calling local banks to ask for their mortgage rate offers? Uh, Sabrina, we have an entire class, uh, a two hour class on interviewing lenders in order to get rates. And I, I spend two hours answering that question in excruciating detail. The short answer is three. In general, I recommend you get three referrals from people you know and call them all in the same day. And there's details about that. It's not as simple as just call them at will, Nilly willy, all over the place. But uh, yeah, yeah, go to. There's a two-hour class on that particular topic. I think if anyone remembers what the title is, it's something like interviewing lenders and estimating rates or something like that. It's uh, it's good. If, if anyone remembers what it is, you can share it and uh, Sabrina can do that. All right, so let's get to the background here. What prompted this class? So over the last several years, and this is not like a a unique case, although this particular one was a, a really nice little special situation for us. There is a neighborhood um, that if somebody told me, hey, listen, I'm a nomad and I want a nomad in Fort Collins or northern Colorado, and they said to me, Is there, you know, like where are the deals? And we would, we would refer them to this one particular neighborhood. I mean, there's other options too, but this was like a, we used to uh, sort of like, I would, Tammy doesn't use this term, but I, I sort of considered it our own little personal like honeypot. It's like, you know, if somebody wants to kind of buy a house, you know, this is like a really good little deal, a good neighborhood that was good for nomads. You know, we know the, we knew the rent ratios, we knew the prices they, and the, the builders were reasonable prices were good. And I thought the location was good and, and kind of like how things were there. Um, so I'm going sh- to share with you some numbers from a particular client and I sort of rounded and stuff like that. And I happened to talk to this client today and I, I told them, uh, you're going to be famous. I'm not going to mention you by name, but it's all about you. And, uh, and, and there's other clients that they could literally be thinking this is about them. Had I not told you that I talked to this person today and told them they were going to be famous because there were more than one client that did this neighborhood and did multiple properties in there. Um, Now, I don't think it's the real estate investor loan comparison deep dive. Um, Although that's a good one too. I think the class, I'll have to go look it up. It's something like comparing loan programs or comparing lenders and stuff like that. It was probably two years ago. It was was, was before the COVID stuff because we had it in person. We had it live and I printed out sheets from a whole bunch of different lenders and I showed you how to compare lender programs and how to call them all that. was, it was around there. It was was probably like a late in the year. I felt like it was fall or snowing or something like that. Or well, maybe it was spring. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm misimagining. All these classes merged together. They merged together. All right. So continue on with my kind of like, what prompted this class? So um, this property, it's all the same four bedroom model. It's the exact same builder. And in most cases, this client was going under contract months before they actually closed. So the pricing sort of is delayed, right? Like you go under contract in October and you don't close until April or May. You know, it's like that long of a building time. So there's a little bit of delay between when they went under contract and when it actually is delivered to them. So here are their numbers and why this class exists is the Nomad Dead kind of class exists. So in April of 2018, uh, this client purchased a property, it's four bedroom property, the same builder, um, same model for $354,000 with about $10,000 in options. They did like, I don't know, flooring or fencing or something like that. So it was really about 344,000 for the base price of that particular model. In June of 2019, a year later, they decided to do this Nomad thing where they're gonna buy a property, move in for a year, live there. Then at the end of the year, they're gonna convert that one to a rental. They're gonna go buy a new property. They're gonna move into that, buy it with 5% down or whatever they're doing, 3% down, 5%, 0%, percent—you know, something like that. And they're gonna move into the property and live there. And then they're gonna repeat this process where they convert that one to a rental and move into another property. And that's what Nomad is in general. So in June of 2019, uh, the client purchased the exact same model from the exact same builder in the exact same neighborhood for 360,000. And this one had about $3,000 in options, so it was about $357,000 for the base price. So previously the base price the year before plus a couple of months or plus a month or two was 344, then it went up to 357. That was about a 3.77% per year increase in home prices. Now, when we do deal analysis and we talk about you know, modeling stuff and everything else, we typically historically have used 3%. So is getting a 3.77% increase in price good or bad? I, I mean, I think it's neutral, right? Because in some ways it helps you and the properties that you own have in theory gone up that much in value. And any properties that you're about to buy are a little bit more expensive. So it hurts you there when you're going to buy properties and do that. So it ended up being 3.77% increase one year to the next. Totally within what I would consider a reasonable range of what the property value had gone up from between April of 2018 and June of 2019. And we typically model that 3%. Rent at that time when they rented the property. Because remember the first year they lived in it. So we didn't know what rents were. And, and that's a problem with a lot of times when we're buying, especially in a new construction neighborhood and we don't have a lot of rent comps. We're guessing what rent will be. And it's not even what rent will be when we buy it, which it's going to be in like five months from when we go under contract. It's what rent will be a year from after we buy it and we move in and we're going to convert it to a rental. So we're sort of like guessing as to what rents will be in some cases, 18 months or more out. Sometimes tricky to do that. So it turns out rent was about, and I don't remember what we were estimating for rent. I just remember thinking this is probably going to be a good rental area. Rent was about 22.50 per month, and I honestly think they probably got top of the market. I think they got really, I don't want to say lucky, but you know there's a range of rents. Rent's not an exact number. And you could advertise, you know, 2100, you could advertise 2300, and you could get, you know, somewhere in that range it might take you a little longer to get to 23, or you could find that right person who works really close to there, or it's directly between two places where the two spouses work. And so it's a great central location. I mean, it's all these reasons why it could be that thing, but rent is not an exact number. And so they got 2250 per month. I felt as though that was a really good high number for them for rent. I was like, that's awesome. You crushed it. You did really good. So uh, they bought their next property for 360, which is 3k in options. 357 was the base price, and they rented out the one they bought for 354 for 2250. Okay, so that's what it was, 2250. Last year in 2020, June of 2020, so like 12 months, pretty much since the last one, the client purchased the same exact property, same model, same neighborhood, same builder, for 376. And they had about three thousand dollars in options and upgrades uh, on that particular one the two. So they, so the base price of that one was three seventy three for the base price. Uh, That was about a four point four eight percent increase from the previous year. So again, we usually use three percent. This time it went up four point four eight in a year. Hot market, property values went up a little bit. So I thought that was encouraging. You know, property values went up there. And rent actually went down a little bit, or you could say they didn't quite crush it. They didn't get a home run like they did the year before. And so rents were about $2,200 a month in that particular case. So that's what we got. And and I should also point out, I don't know if every single data point for this, for this particular example is the same client, because uh, for some of the rents, I have multiple clients in that neighborhood and they're all doing like a nomadish thing. And so some of them actually were able to rent it. And I may have used like one client's number when it really was another client. And so, but but it's the same model. They're all buying similar models in that neighborhood, four bedroom. Um, although there's a couple builders we go with in that particular neighborhood, but you get the idea. And this is in uh, Northern Colorado, in case you're wondering. So rent was about 2200, which was less than the year before, a little bit less than the year before. So it didn't really go up, it kind of stayed the same. This year, June of 2021, like while I was preparing for this class, I reached out to the builder. I said, hey, uh, what do you have left in inventory for the model that we normally buy? told them the model. I said, what do you got for me in the same neighborhood? And they told me, are you sitting down? Are you ready for this? 477,950. Pause for dramatic effect. Take a drink. That's right, so last year the base price was 373. This year the base price is 477950. To which I did a quick calculation. that is a 28.15 percent increase from the previous year. So I start thinking to myself and, and by the way, rent is about 2,300. So, Rents were maybe 22, 22.50, somewhere in there. They were getting about $2,300 a month in rent uh, for the model, same neighborhood thing there. So rents did not go up 23, 28.15% there. And, And Bob and Barbie are saying, because of building costs, I think building costs are a major factor in this. Are they the only thing that's going on? Absolutely not. There's just ridiculous demand right now for properties. And so I think it's a combination of increased building costs, lack of inventory, lack of speed, you know, the ability for them to get these properties built. Maybe there's some staffing issues. I heard there's a whole bunch of people that are opting not to work and staying home and collecting uh, some type of uh, pay for not working and, you know, stuff like that. So there's a bunch of stuff like that going on, right? And so this is what prompts a class called Is Nomad Dead? You know, prices are up a lot, like not just 5%, 6%, 7%, 5%, 6%, 7%, which we could have modeled. I mean, we could have done that, right? So prices are up a lot, like 28.5%. And by the way, this is not like, this is an extreme example. It's not like where it is every single place, but I think that we see, we're see we seeing prices increase quite a bit, maybe not the 28.15% across the board, right? You could go find another neighborhood where you're like, oh, prices are up, but, but not 28%, right? Like quite a bit, but not, not that much. So prices are up a lot. Demand is up a lot. You know, this multiple offers on a lot of these properties, there's waiting lists for some builders in order to get into properties. Now it's, it's pretty ridiculous right now, which as an aside, if ever there was a time for someone to take three months off, might it be during one of the craziest real estate markets ever where it's really hard to serve clients because they're having to go out and make 10 offers to get one property accepted or they have to be on waiting lists even for new construction or you know prices have jumped up really fast and rents are sort of lagging behind. If ever there was a time for a real estate broker who was kind of getting a little bit burned out a little bit, needed a little break for them to take three months off, might it be Q3 2021? I don't know. I'm just saying hypothetically, not saying anything in particular. I'm not calling anyone out by name, not doing any of that, but I'm just just saying, just saying, maybe 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 okay so demand is up interest rates are down which i'll show you here in a second but not that much (laughs) they didn't go down like that crazy so it's not like the the price is uh you know the same like you know the monthly payment's the same uh rents are up you know but not that much i mean they're not like 28.15 you know like it's it's pretty crazy to think about this this nonsense Uh, income is up you know people's income have actually gone up we're seeing uh some inflation sort of activities going on where you know people applying for jobs are are seeing those uh the wages starting wages there and in some cases uh, people are getting raises and i don't know we're seeing a lot of that stuff it also sounds like you've thought it through i'm not sure what those shapes are is that like a unicorn maybe it's a unicorn um and then bob and barbie say especially a broker that doesn't want to be a psychologist you know, buyers able to get the house yeah Right, it's hard. You know, you go read a lot of these articles about agents and you know how they're really struggling, and you know, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff. So, so it up. Signs suggest that inflation is already here, and it, that it's likely to continue. I mean, we're seeing signs of that happening right now. So you've got all these kind of factors coming in, which prompts me to ask, hey, is nomad dead? Like, has the train left the station? you know, am I too late to the party? If I just learned about this thing, if I just went online, I saw your class, I'm like, oh man, this nomad thing, this sounds really, really good. And then you like see the numbers I was using and oh, I put it back in the shelf. I probably shouldn't have done that. If you see the numbers I had in the nomad book that I used to give away when people came to class live and you're looking at these things and you're like 230, 240, can we still buy houses for 240? And then you're like, and, and you're like, what is going on here? Like, how does that even work? Like, is it too late? I mean, the, the numbers you were using before, those seem really, really different. I can't get any to look anything like that. Begs you to ask, you know, is Nomad dead? Am I too late? Is this like even gonna happen for me? Should I even bother? Or are you like, oh, always happens to me. I find out about something. Had I only been buying properties like this particular client of James, you know, the property he bought for 354, you know, once these ones sell for 477, those become comparable sales to show that that's probably the new value for someone trying to buy a property. You know, it's about that when the new ones become comparables for the ones that they bought, you know, three years ago, whatever it is for 354. So what is the difference in price between that? Is that like $120,000? approximately 120,000. So one, two, well, I guess not all of them are 120, but let's one, two, three properties that they bought previously. So that's probably $300,000 in profit in one year. What? That's crazy, right? Definitely crazy. Yeah. See Roy says, I, I'm supposed to actually call him when I know it's going to increase $120,000. I didn't know. I called like the clients that had properties in that neighborhood. I'm like, Hey, are you sitting down? Because I just found out the models you've been buying, they're now $100,000 more than what we were paying last year. And they're like, what? I'm like, yes. And we just had to wait for them to sell because it's just crazy. Okay. So this is why there's a class called Is Nomad Dead? And we will find out. So because I did this particular one builder, I went and I looked at some historical data on another builder that we like here in Northern Colorado. Yeah, cue the charts. Exactly, Steve. You're right, buddy. Here we go. So what I did is I went and I looked at some historical data and I'll tell you how I got this chart because I think it's instructive and it's probably interesting to some folks, especially the more the nerdy geeky ones and uh, you know, you know who you are. So what I did is instead of actually going back and trying to pick out exactly one, this particular model that we happen to like buying, it's a four bedroom property by a new construction uh, by a builder that does new construction in Northern Colorado. And uh, I went all the way back to about 2014 data um, because I think that's when it stopped. I think that's when it started. Rather, I think this is that particular property when they started building this model with these specs. And I went and I looked at, and I said, okay, it has to match this exact square footage requirement. It has to have you know this amount for you know above grade finished square foot, this amount of finished square foot, including the basement. And so I matched it based on square footage. So is it possible there's like a rogue property in here? Yes. But I will tell you, I, I hand-looked at the data just a quick glance, and the overwhelming majority of these things were exactly this builder. Uh, by the way, don't call me during Anchorage because I, cl- I had to turn my phone off. So um, this, this shows you, like, this particular builder with this matching square footage, and it shows you the price. Now, this does include multiple cities, so it's not just all the same city. There are some of these in, like, very far east Greeley which are less expensive than something in, let's say Fort Collins or um, you know, Loveland or uh, Severance or um, you know, like whatever the other Northern Colorado cities are, which I can't think of right now, Windsor as an example. So this covers a wide range of cities Um, And it also covers a wide range of what upgrades people do. Just as an example, when my clients typically buy a property from this particular builder, we talk to them about the pros and cons of rolling in all of the upgrades, backyard landscaping, backyard fence, air conditioning, um, the upgraded appliance package. So there's all these extra things that we usually talk about. Hey, look, you, you could go ahead and add all these things after closing and save yourself some money because the builder has definitely marked them up. Or if you decide to roll them in and have the builder provide them, you're paying a premium, but you're able to finance them. And so you're only putting out 5% or 20% or 25% of the value of the thing because you're financing the rest at some really low interest rate. And so there's a range of what these values would be. It's not like this one got bid up or anything like that, and maybe that this person who bought this particular property right here, where my mouse went, um, You know, decided to roll all their stuff in, or maybe they had a lot premium because it, it backed out to open space or something like that. And so all these different factors as to where they are. But in general, you can see the trend. The trend is up and to the right. You can see the property price decreases. And one of the things I'll point out is, you can kind of see here where we hit the new year, Almost everything is pushing on the high end of that line. It's not like you have stuff that's kind of on the low end of the line, you know, like you see over here. It's like this year, everything is being pushed up on price. So we're definitely above the average line of what we've been seeing in appreciation rate. The red line is the linear growth rate, the black line is the exponential growth rate. So it's a little bit better than. Uh, linear as far as growth goes. That's how I would interpret that data. I don't know if Andrew is on or something like that, who is a big math guy, but he could uh, correct me if I'm wrong in, in my analysis of this particular chart. But you could see the prices for these things has definitely gone up. Before we were able to get this Michigan model, the four bedroom uh, property for, you know, in the low to mid 200 low to mid 200s, like, you know, 230, 240. And if you remember, this is about the time that this book was written. And this is the example we use in this particular book. So it matches what we were getting at the time in the book, if you kind of think about it that way. The same properties nowadays, you know, they're over 400. You know, they're, they're like up there, okay? So you can see this historical chart. So when prices go up that much, rents don't quite go up that much, is Nomad Dead. All right, so I'm going to do some comparisons, because I think that's what you want to know, right? You're like, hey, listen, I read the 2015, the original Nomad book, and uh, the numbers are not what they are today. Yeah, no joke, right? So let's go think about Nomad then and now. Here they are. So back in the 2015 original Nomad book, the purchase price we used was $238,875. That was the base price with some upgrades thrown in for buying a at the time, it was basically a Michigan model, although you could make an argument it was any other house that was similar characteristics. It didn't have to be that, but that's what we used when I modeled it, okay? So it's $238,875. The purchase price today for that same model with the same upgrades, $437,375. Now, this is not a true compounding annual growth rate comparison, right? Because it's not like we have the same house and the same house sold. It's like you have the same house, that may be in a different neighborhood, maybe may be in a metro district, it may not be in a metro district, it may, you know, on average, back to better location, or, or be in a better, you know, a place, a better city, you know, any of these things kind of factors. So it's not truly a compounding annual growth rate. But I did do the math for you that says, hey, look, if, if they were like 240 or so back then, and now they're 440 or so right now, what is the annual growth rate for that six year period between those? Turns out, the growth rate for those properties during that time was about 10.61% per year compounding annual growth rate. Craziness, 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 craziness. Okay. So we were estimating 3%. So when properties do better than that, it helps you for all the properties that you own. It hurts you because you're buying more expensive properties as you're moving forward. So it helps and hurts depending on where you are in the process. Now, back then, in 2015, the interest rate we used when we did our deal analysis in the book was 4.5%. And we talked about using a lender paid PMI, private mortgage insurance. Go watch the whole two hour class on private mortgage insurance. I'm not gonna cover it here in detail, but basically the lender increases the rate slightly. And instead of charging you a monthly PMI payment, it's included in the interest rate, okay? So that was a 4.51%, 4.5% lender paid PMI rate, the overall interest rate uh, with 5% down. Today maybe not today, but when I did the comparing loans class, I called to the lender. We did a whole spreadsheet on this. The interest rate was 3.625% with lender paid PMI with 5% down. So it was 4.5, now it's 3.625. So that actually got better. That might help us, right? Uh, Steven or Stefan says, where do we watch the older videos? Um, You're in a really weird spot because I'm like shutting everything down, Um, for going to thing right now though you could probably still watch like a hundred of them when by watch i mean listen um, on the podcast but i would go download them tonight like while you're here go download them because i am this close this this close to actually shutting everything down and pulling everything off the off the uh, podcast too so go download what you want you can actually go subscribe to it and then click download on all of them they'll stay on your phone even if i delete them is my understanding and then go listen to the ones you want there um, if somebody wants to put the, the, the thing on there, it's, I think it's Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast, but if someone happens to have the link and is willing to be nice to see them, you can put them on there. Okay, so I'll continue with the class up. So interest rates were worse, 4.5. Now they're better at 3.625. And then the estimated principal interest taxes, insurance, that's P-I-T-I, plus the HOA, plus the PMI. If you add up all of those things as the monthly cost, uh, before in 2015, when we did the book, it was 1388 and a penny. I just went back and I recreated the calculations and I, I figured out what the payment was. $1,388, roundup called 1400 bucks. about 1400 bucks for the payment then. Today, to buy the same house, $440,000 approximately at the new 3.65% interest rate, the payment is about $2,306. Wow, my phone is blowing up tonight. I'm not sure, maybe people think I'm already on sabbatical I'm not teaching class anymore. Uh, so $2,306, uh, seventy nine is the new payment there. If you kind of do a compounding annual growth rate for that, like if you pretended that you know it went from this to that, that's eight point eight four percent compounding annual growth rate per year. So if you think about it, it went up, but not quite as fast as the price did because interest rates came down. So the payment increased, but not as much. It still went crazy. I mean, it's like eight and a half percent, more than eight and a half percent per year growth rate on that. Bam, that's like crazy nuts up. And then rents. Rents went from back when we wrote the book, we were getting $15.45 a month in rent on those things. $1545. As if you can rent the property for $1,545 now. It's like, I don't know, yeah, the market's crazy. So $15.45 a month was back then. Nowadays, that same model is probably in the ballpark, depending on what neighborhood it is and kind of what's going on there, about 2200 dollars a month. That's a 6.07% fake compounding annual growth rate because it's really not the same thing and so doing that are it's, it's not a good comparison but it's a it's a comparison because you could see like how fast these things grew compared to each other right so the price went up the most grew the fastest the um the the actual payment amount grew the second fastest and rents lagged rents did not go up as much as prices went up nor as quickly as the payment actually went to went up to do that okay Uh, Franklin, thank you for posting those podcast uh, links there. I appreciate that. Um, that's for you, Steven. And then, uh, Steve says rents are lagging. Annual takes time to adjust up. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take time to do that. But what's, what's great about these properties is you lock in your financing and the price you paid at, at like whatever the rates were. And if rates went down, which they did, you could actually go and ratchet your interest rate down and improve the financing on it. If they went up, No big deal. You had a 30-year fixed rate financing on there. It doesn't get worse for you. But if it does get better for you, you can take advantage of that and refinance and do like a rate and term refinance or cash out if you really want to and do that, okay? So those were the comparisons between then and now. All right. So the question becomes, is Nomad dead? You know, should you go, if you could have gotten this before and now it's this, should you even bother? And I think the question I would rather pose to you as kind of like an alternative to this is, do you have something better to invest in? You know, What is your alternative? What's the If you're not gonna do Nomad, what are you gonna do else? And I think that's the way we have to look at it because yes, and I'll show you numbers. I'm gonna gonna go into detail. You'll see charts, you'll see numbers, but I'm gonna show you the returns are definitely not what they were in 2015. Now the the people that actually follow the plan from 2015, their returns are way better than we estimated in this book, right? Because we are estimating 3% growth rate for uh, purchase price, uh, 3% growth rate for rents. And we assume the interest rates stayed the same. So prices went up faster than that. So any properties they own grew, grew faster than that. The, the rents grew faster than that. And also the interest rates came down. Is that always going to happen? Is it always going to go in your favor? Absolutely not. Not a chance. Okay. So here's the question though. Is Nomad dead? And I think the better question is, what are you going to do if you're not going to do Nomad? And then let's look at what the return is now for Nomad and see. Okay. So alternatives you could invest in the stock market stock market is doing amazing this year may do better next year may do worse we don't know i mean i think it's all speculative which you know i'll get to this later on because i have a whole section on like learn helplessness and and kind of like making choices and am i too late to the party and all sort of other stuff which i'll talk about i'll hold that for later so alternative stocks you can invest in that bonds a lot of a lot of people are saying bonds right now are dead. You know the interest rates you're getting on bonds are are so low that some people are really questioning whether or not you should have bonds in your portfolio. Uh, you're going to invest in commodities. I'll probably do some more of that uh, in commodity investing in my sabbatical time, my retirement. Uh, 20 or 25% down buying properties. If you're going to go buy those, maybe 15% down if you're willing to pay the PMI and that high rate, most people would not be willing to do that. Are you going to go do that? Or other real estate, are you going to go buy creatively? Are you going to go try to find motivated sellers in this market? Good luck. I mean, it's possible, but it's going to be really hard in this market to find motivated sellers. Maybe when the market changes, I mean, we'll see markets change. They, they get hot, they get cold, they get hot, they get cold. I mean, it just cycles. So are you going to do 20 or 25% down? Are you going to do some other type of real estate? Are you going to buy options? Are you going to do turnkey stuff? Are you going to do lease options? What are you going to do? Like what's the return you're going to get on those? Are you going to go do dog money? Are you going to do Bitcoin or some other type of cryptocurrency? Like what are you going to invest in? And what are the characteristics of that? And what are the returns you're going to get? So what's the return with Nomad then in 2015? And then what is the return in Nomad now? And, and I'm not going to use the, the like crazy returns we saw. I'm going to use what we estimated the returns were going to be, that 3% slow and steady growth rate. Because if I go and I go back to 2015 and I use some ridiculously high, you know, 10% return year, yeah, it's going to look crazy. It's going to look awesome. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, listen, you know, back when we were thinking about this, we were saying, if you can get 3% of your growth rate on average, some of yours is going to be down, some of yours is going to be up. But 3% growth rate per year. 3% right growth rate per year. And you compare that to buying something today, and maybe you'll get 3% today. Who knows? With inflation, maybe it's better than that. Maybe we see some, you know, it's kind of like peaked out and we give a little back. So we're going to buy our next one at a slight discount. And I mean, we don't really know. It's, it's, it's just, it's not clear. Well, I'll get to some of that later, too. So if you compare what you can get now, maybe to what you had before or what you can get. With the other options you're thinking about today, what are the returns you're going to get in stocks or bonds or commodities or whatever else you're going to invest in? What are your choices there? And does it make sense for you to do Nomad? And then you can determine is Nomad dead or not for you based on your specific situation, okay? And and I'll also point out, remember with Nomad, we are limited in the amount of money that we can put into the deal, right? Because you can only buy one per year with some really rare exceptions, We you can really only buy one Nomad property per year that you can move into, live there for a year and then convert it to a rental. And most of the time we're opting to put 5% down and not more, because if we put more, we tend to actually decrease, lower the overall return because we're less leveraged, okay? So we're somewhat restricted. So you're gonna put a little bit into this Nomad thing. And then I think if you have extra money, you're either going to build up your reserves and kind of prepare for the next thing, or you're going to invest in something else, stocks, bonds, commodities, you know, CDs, whatever it is that makes sense for you. Okay. So inflation, having debt is largely that is largely supported by someone else who's paying for it like tenants um, that you could pay off later with inflated dollars is beneficial. So if we happen to be in a period where we're expecting higher inflation which it seems like that's what is going on right now, and that seems like what we're likely to see, at least in the near-term future, then having the ability to pay off debt later with inflated dollars is helpful for us, especially if the tenants are sort of covering or more than covering the amount of debt you, the payments you have on that debt in the meantime. Okay, so that's a good position to be in. Okay, one other thing I'll point out here. Tyler says, why 5% instead of that new 3% conventional? We talk about this in the financing nomad class. Um, A lot of times doing the 3% might make sense for you if you're short on down payment, but the interest rate is usually worse on the 3% one. And so you need to make that decision for yourself. If you go watch the class on... uh, uh, like the loan comparison deep dive. I talk about the difference between a 3% loan and a 5% loan and what the actual monthly payment difference would look like. But if, you're, if, if you can only do the 3% because that's where your down payment is or you'd rather have more reserves, go for it. You're usually limited on how many you can do too. So we do the 5% all the way up to you know, 10 loans or more for owner-occupant. The 3%, you're gonna be limited in how many you can do. But there's more detail on that in other classes. That's really not a, a topic for tonight. Okay, you're not committing to 10 nomads. So I wanna point this out up front. It's not like you have to decide today that I'm gonna do this 10 Nomad plan. 10 is arbitrary. I hope you guys know that, right? Like, We sort of plan it out for you and put it in front of you so that you can see what it looks like if you go that far out, but you don't have to do 10. You could do one, you could do three, you could do seven, you could do 14, you could do 27 of these, okay? There's no like limits high or low on how many you have to do. You're choosing to purchase one property. You're making a decision today, okay, today with the knowledge I have, with the information I have right now, with my current financial situation, with my current reserves, with my current amount I've set aside to invest, with my current risk tolerance, with my current family situation, with my current job situation, I am going to either choose to buy one house or I'm going to choose not to buy a house. It's a single decision point. You're not saying, I'm getting married, I'm doing this 10 nomad thing deal. You don't have to decide that, it's one. Then once you buy the one, you move in there, you're living there, you save your money, you continue to educate yourself over the next year. There's zero pressure to do a second one. If you decide you wanna do it, great. If you decide you don't wanna do it, great. You don't have to do more. You decide if you want to do one more at that point. It's up to you, okay? You only repeat this if it still makes sense to you. You reevaluate. Here's my new job situation. Here's my new financial situation. Here's my new reserve situation. Here's my new down payment. Here's what I think the market might or might not do. Although, I mean, good luck with that. Here's what I think is gonna do there. It's like all this stuff you take into account and you decide, do I wanna move forward with another one? Yes or no. If it makes sense, you do another one. Yeah, where he says, speak for yourself. Those numbers say buy 10, obviously. Right. And I think there's a case to be made that you'll like get to the next point. You'll be like, what are my options? What else can I invest in? Oh, this nomad thing is the best returning investment I could possibly make. I'm going to choose to do that. But you need to decide that on your own. There are no promises being made, there's no guarantees in life, period. Okay. So I personally think there is power in making good decisions repeatedly. Think about good habits. You know, I'm a bad example of this, but eating good, healthy food every day, getting good regular exercise, investing in long-term relationships, like all those things, the good habits that you put in and make, you know, compounding effects over time, I think you're rewarded for that. But you can get feedback through the Nomad process and other things, but you can get feedback on the Nomad thing and you can make better distinctions and you can improve your decision-making over time. So next year, you may say, you know, this two-bedroom property I bought in you know, the right over the border in Wyoming wasn't the best investment for me. Maybe I'll do a three bedroom or four bedroom, or maybe I'll come a little bit south into Northern Colorado or whatever it is. So you go and you kind of like evaluate whatever that is for you and you make better distinctions and you make better decisions over time. Does that mean that you're, that you are automatically going to make better decisions? No, but you'll make different decisions and you'll say, oh, that was even worse than what I tried before. I should do something different next time, which we'll talk about more when we talk about learned helplessness. Okay. So there you go. So let's take a look at this cash flow power meter 2015, then and now in 2021. Uh, there's a whole class on the cash flow power meter where I explain to you what's going on here, but this shows you a relative measure of how good the cash flow is on a particular property we're considering. And back in 2015, we were right in the middle. This little black line here shows that you were right in the middle, where you would have positive cash flow only if you took into account the the cash flow from depreciation, the actual tax benefits of owning that property. Otherwise, it would be slightly negative cash flow. That's what having it in this yellow section means. It means that if if you take into account the cash flow from depreciation, the tax benefits of owning the rental property, um, then this would be slightly positive, with. Cash flow if you take that into account. Otherwise, it's negative. In 2021, even if you take into account the cash flow from depreciation, it's negative with 5% down. That's what this is showing you. It's showing you that it's it's red, it's negative. You manage it yourself, including the tax benefits, it's negative cash flow right now if you're going to buy properties. So there you go. That's what we're seeing right now. <clears throat> Comparing them to now. Time for a beverage here. All right, <clears throat> here we go. And just to show you a kind of comparison, I showed you the same chart before. This is the uh, 2015, you know, six years ago, 5% down Nomad book, right in the middle of this uh, cash flow from depreciation thing. And then I showed you today, 2021, if you put that 5% down, it would be that negative cash flow. If you decided to put 20% down, as a non owner occupant, you did not occupy the property, we're not moving in here with this 20% down, then it would still be slightly negative cash flow. So if you go buy a rental property today in Northern Colorado and you bought this particular new construction as a, a similar example, you'd still have negative cash flow even if you put 20% down. Back in 2015, if you put 20% down, it would be positive cash flow, barely, but positive. Okay. And then if you put 25% down and you bought this as a regular rental, you would have slightly positive cash flow. It's in this light green area if you managed it yourself. Because this dark green area is showing you what happens when you have a professional property manager in there. So this is the cutoff line between you managing you managing it yourself and having a professional property manager. So you put 25% down. If you're buying this property, you would have slightly positive cash flow if you managed it yourself, or negative cash flow if you had a professional property manager doing it yourself. Same property, just three different financing types that I showed you to compare. That's what these three different meters show. Okay. Any questions on this? Is this is this good for you guys? Are you like liking the is nomad Dead? Is it interesting? Let me know. That'd be helpful as i drink my beverage. Okay, it's interesting for at least one person. Thank you, Nick. All right, so the re- okay, so uh, apparently there's some other people that I find it interesting too. Okay, cool. So this is the return in dollars quadrant that we typically use, so, you know, the return on investment quadrant series. We've got return in dollars, we've got return on investment, we got return on equity. I'm showing you return in dollars comparing the 2015 book to the 2021 if you bought something today and how does that work? Um, uh, Nathan and Lindsay haven't, haven't had a class that isn't interesting yet. Well, there, that's a very nice thing to say, although you're lacking some exclamation points, I might say, although that's a smiley face. I appreciate that. Love the neediness of the presentation. I'm not sure what neediness. I, I don't know if that's good. Neediness, Suck up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Royce said, I think, I think he was talking to Nathan and Lindsay about being a suck up. There you go. Royce, you should switch it all to all panelists and attendees so that you can trash talk directly instead of just trash talking to me. And everyone else can do all panelists and attendees too. That way other people can see their stuff. Okay, here we go. So what this shows you is the amount of dollars that you're getting in return in the first year for buying a property this way. And, And by the way, I do know that you're technically not renting the property in year one as a nomad, but I'm pretending as if you did. Okay, so I do understand you're not really renting it in year one. This is like as if you could magically rent out a property, get full rent when you're supposed to be owner occupying the property. I do this as like a as like an instruction sort of thing, but it's not practical, right? Because if you're doing nomad, you're putting 5% down, you're not able to rent out the property in the first year um, and move out and do that. There you go. Uh-oh. Braces now unleashed. So this shows you the amount of return. So for example. And this uses the same like uh, appreciation and rent appreciation numbers as before, but it does use different interest rates. And it does use different prices. Um, and the denominator is different because you're, den- well, and there's no denominator in this, so it's just return dollars. But we ter- return on investment. The denominator changes because it's 5% of the lower price house or 5% of the higher price house. All right, so in 2015, the appreciation would be $7,166 if we had 3% growth on whatever that was, 240. So it shows you 7,166. On 2021, the amount, the dollar amount of your appreciation is much higher. Why? Because you bought a much more expensive house and it still went up 3%. So it went up $13,121. So from a sheer dollars in the bank perspective, it's better to have bought today than it was to buy five years ago. Kind of crazy to think about that. Cash flow, cash flow was slightly ugly before, negative 471. It's really ugly now, negative $4,634 for the year. So that's like negative $400 a month. So beyond the 5% down, you also need to make up that negative cash flow when you go to rent it out. Although it is offset by these tax benefits, because this is your cash flow from depreciation. Basically, it's the gross depreciation amount on just the building, not including the land, multiplied by your effective tax rate, which is just an estimate of your approximate savings you'd get by um, having this property and um, getting tax benefit from it. Okay. So in this case, the difference between these two is the actual amount of cash flow you need to come out of pocket at the end of the year when you included your tax benefits and also the cash flow you had to put out there. So 2,028 is offset by this. So it's like uh, $250 a month or 200 and something dollars a month is how much negative cash flow you had there. Where here, we showed you this before, when you took into account your tax benefits from 2015 and the negative cash flow, you were still slightly positive. That's what we showed before when we talked about cash flow power meter, okay? And then the debt pay down, you paid down $3,661 back in 2015. The amount of uh, principal you paid down on that loan over the course of that first year Uh, Now you're paying down $7,806. It's a combination of two things as to why this is higher. Number one, the property is more expensive, but number two, your interest rate is better too. And you pay down more principal with a lower interest rate, okay? So those are the two reasons. So back then when you bought a Nomad property, we expected to do about $11,464 total for the year. Now we're expecting $18,321. So you end up doing larger dollar amounts today than you did back then that's good in general here is the return on investment numbers so we take the same dollar amounts we just had here now we're dividing through by the actual down payment amount the 5% plus the closing costs and so now we got about a, five, a 50% appreciation rate so 7000 must have been about $14000 plus closing costs uh, uh, down payment plus closing costs in order to get here so it's about a 50% return from appreciation back in 2015 it's the same here today, because we're assuming it's 3%. So it works out to be the same, right? Cash flow was about negative 3.28 before. Now it's negative 17.66. That's ugly. Maybe Nomad is dead. We'll see. Debt pay down was about 25.54%. Now it's better. Your debt pay down is actually improved because your interest rate's a little bit better. Is 29.74% is your return for debt pay down. And then your tax benefits are the same. So the overall return on investment, when we used to do this back in 2015, was 79.99%. That's pretty amazing. What's the return on investment now? Oh, it's only 69.81. Boo-hoo. Right? How bad is it to get almost 70% return on your money? Right? I mean, that's like the crazy thing. And that's why we're thinking, is Nomad dead? Well, If you can go and get a return that exceeds 70% somewhere else with similar risk characteristics, because you got to take into account risk, real estate risk is very different than, you know, stock market risk or something else like that. But is this risk similar? And can you be the 70% return? Maybe, maybe not. It's up to you to decide. Okay. So it was 80. Now it's almost 70. Still not bad at all. Now, what if we took into account, the reserves you need in order to hold rental property. It would be silly for you to buy a rental property and not put aside reserves. And we talked about this in like, uh, everything you learned about deal analysis is wrong. There's a two hour class on this concept of why you should do your calculations and include reserves when you do your return on investment calculations. So go watch that class. It's two hours long and you'll understand more about what I'm to talk about. But realize if we include the reserve numbers, the six months of reserves, that's what our, our ROIQ plus R6, six months of reserves, uh, and you compare that back to when we were doing it, the return now when you include reserves on everything is 49.05 compared to 44.66. Still a little bit less, but when did like 45% return on your money become a bad return? When did it become bad? So Bob and Barbie says, seems like the tax benefits should be greater as the purchase price is more. It's the same ratio, though, because you put 5% down on both. So when you, when you actually do it that way, there are similar returns because it's, it's a dollar amount based on the price, but it's also the same denominator changing as well based on the price. So it turns out it's the same ratio. Good question, though. Uh, Steve says something. Everything you learn about deal analysis is wrong. Yep, there you go. That's the class on that one, although it's probably on the podcast. Okay, so that's the R six number. What about if you do twelve months of reserves? We decide to keep your reserves, most of them in the stock market or something else with a higher rate of return. Well, the return is thirty nine point four seven percent from twenty fifteen versus thirty six point seven two today. It's still a pretty amazing return, especially for having twelve months uh, reserves that are a drag on your overall return. There, I don't know. It still seems pretty amazing. But it's up to you to decide if Nomad is dead. It's not for me. So is Nomad dead? Let's take a look at some comparison scenarios. So because I have this pretty cool software that allows me to do models of scenarios and run out situations for people, I ran five different scenarios to compare. And then I added a couple more at the end because I thought I might have time. We'll see if I get there. So the original Nomad with 2015 numbers, I did that as kind of like a baseline. said, okay, this is what we thought it would be before. I just sort of laid it out there and I ran it and I showed you what that looked like. Then I did 2021 Nomad right now. um, And I I did a couple different situations there. I did uh, doing 10 Nomads, which is the most similar comparison to the 2015 ones. And then any extra cash I did in stocks, which is the same thing I did in 2015, by the way. Uh, And then I also compared it to, Hey, listen, if I'm not going to do this nomad thing in 2021, maybe I'm going to buy just a house to live in and I'm going to take all the rest of my money and I'm just going to invest it in stocks. So I ran that too. And I think I used 8% for the stock market return. Okay. Um, And then I did another scenario where I said, okay, you're going to buy a house to live in, one owner-occupying property, and then you're going to actually save up to buy 20% down properties. And you're going to buy nine rentals, nine rentals with 20% down. And then the last one I did is you're going to buy a house to live in with 5% down, and you're going to buy nine 25% down rental properties. And so I'm going to look at how the original 2015 Nomad did in comparison to doing 10 Nomads today, doing um, no Nomads, basically buy a house to live in and do everything else in stocks to doing owner-occupant with 20% down and owner-occupant with 25% down. And you'll have nine rentals for all those things. Okay, here we go. Kevin says, pretty sure I got a 200, or 200% return in year one at my current house. So Nomad is certainly not dead. <laughs> there you go. Kevin says it all. Um, and then it says, I heard the same rumor, Austin. Uh, oh, Austin says, is the rumor that Royce is teaching during sabbatical true? <laughs> uh, maybe. Oh, Royce says no. It's <laughs> <That's> not true. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. All right. So rather than build up any more suspense here, I will show you what the numbers suggest. So, yes, it is true. 2015 Nomad was amazing. Um, A non inflation adjusted net worth at the end of 40 years uh, shows that you'd have $20.7 million in both equity and cash in the stock market um, if you decided to do Nomad in 2015. However, the 2021 Nomad, you at 19.5 million. So 20.7 million, 19.5. I'm pretty sure that's still pretty freaking good. Uh, if you decided you wanted to do uh, one owner occupant property and you bought nine 25% down properties, you'd have 13.4 million. If you decided to do one owner occupant property and nine 20% down properties, you'd have 12.86 million. If you decided to wanted to do one owner-occupied property and you did the rest in stocks at 8%, and maybe you can get better than 8%, you can change these assumptions if you want to, um, you'd have $7.2 million. So that's what the net worth was. If we adjust for inflation, the 2015 nomads like having $6.3 million in today's dollars. Versus a 2021 full-on Nomad is about $6 million in today's dollars. So it's a difference of, well, it's 3.71. So I'll just call it almost four. So $400,000 difference between one and the other, if you think of it that way. Uh, The ones where you do other stuff, um, you know, just in, uh, it's like 4 million, 4 million, and 2.2 million. Daniel says, do you have simulation that shows for markets that are slowly growing, stagnant, or slowly declining, slightly declining? Yes, I do. In fact, the software allows you to do whatever you want. That's why I wrote it. And we have done classes before where I talked about what happens if you're investing during a declining market and stuff like that. So there's like a large number. Um, of models you could do. And you can enter your own stuff and say, what happens if the market does a range of values? Like you do Monte Carlo simulations, stuff like that. So yes, it does all that stuff. Okay, here's the chart showing net worth over time. You can kind of see the curves. These top two, the red one is 2015 Nomad, the orange one is 2021. So they're pretty close together. Then the next two are buying the 20% down or the 25% down rentals, and then the stock market one lags behind here. But you know, part of this is assumptions, right? If you had, if you thought the stock market could get you 15% return, I bet you this this chart looks very different. So you got to go play with what you think you can actually do and compare those to see. All right, so this, this just shows you account balances. Before was net worth, which included equity and also your account balance, which we're assuming the account balances are invested in stocks. But if we just look at how much is in your account, uh, 2015 Nomad, you had $13 million non-inflation adjusted. The 2021 Nomad has you at almost $7 million non-inflation adjusted. And then the other ones um, had you at, you know, let's say three, 2.7 and five point eight. Um, The one where you invest in stocks, the overwhelming majority of your money is in cash because you don't really have a lot of equity besides the one house you bought. So that's why your number is so much bigger than the other ones there. Okay, we adjust for inflation. 2015 Nomad's like 4 million. 2021 Nomad's like 2.1 million. Um, And that's partially because the account balances on the earlier Nomad is a lot more because as you're about to see with the way that I modeled this, I didn't assume your savings was increasing that much more so it took you longer to buy these more expensive properties so it's much slower for you to acquire properties which means that your cash flow lags a lot where you did nomad back in 2015 I assumed you could buy them very quickly so and I didn't I didn't really change the income much between 20, 2015 and 2021 I think I increased it by 3% a year so that's why you're seeing a difference there kind of tricky So it shows you your account balances over time. These are the ones where you're buying properties later in the game. So you can see they're kind of like uh, little dips whenever you put a big down payment on a property. And so that's why that grows. And you can see these other ones here. got the lead. Your cash balance in 2015 is much bigger. So this is what I was talking about before. With 2015 Nomad, the way that I set up the assumptions, as I said, you are saving enough that you have enough for a 5% down payment every year. And so, well, maybe not every year because this line looks a little longer, but it was pretty quick. So you're acquiring properties much faster, and then you get to 10 properties very quickly when you're doing 2015 Nomad. Maybe not every 12 months, but pretty close, pretty close. However, when you did 2021 Nomad, uh, I I assume that it took you a lot longer to save up for those 5% downs because- I think for a lot of folks, it will take them longer. They're not able to do every 12 months. Now, if you have a great income, you have a great job, or you have money set aside and you have the ability to do this every 12 months on the 12 months, it's gonna look a lot better than this. But because of the way I modeled it, it took a lot longer for you to get to the point where you acquire these properties. If you speed this up and it becomes back here, it looks much different, it looks better, okay? Now, these other ones is buying uh, 20% and 25% down. It takes you a lot longer to save up 20% or 25% with the same income and same savings rate than it did for you to do the Nomad. That's one of the benefits of doing Nomad is that you can acquire properties earlier because you don't have to save up 20% down plus reserves or 25% down plus reserves. You only have to save up 5% down plus reserves in order to be able to start acquiring your properties. Okay? And then this other one, you basically bought one property and you lived there and you had stocks. So you bought no other properties. That's the one with uh, just stocks. Any questions on this? Am I going too fast? Or am I going too slow? Just want to make sure we're, we're covering it, but I don't want to bore you either. Oh, let me know. I'll continue on in the meantime. All right, good. All right, so this is that chart that shows you what phase of financial independence. If you guys came to last week's class, I think it was last week's class. Was it last week's class? I went over the stages and phases of financial independence, retiring early, and I covered all those. Well, if it wasn't, it was recently. Yeah. So, uh, and so basically it shows you what phase you're in. And with 2015 Nomad, you get to phase two pretty quickly, the earliest. Then you actually get to phase three, and you eventually get to phase four in your, you know, before your 40, 40 years is up. With the one where you're doing 2021, since it takes you a lot longer to start acquiring the properties because your savings rate isn't enough to get you to do it really, really quickly. Because I handicapped it by showing you a reasonable savings rate, the same savings rate you had before for the 2015 one. Then you barely get into phase two where you have enough for lean fire and you do eventually get into phase three, but you never make it to phase four in that 40 year time period. And with the other ones, you don't even make it into phase three. You barely make it into phase two uh, with these other guys. Okay, and that's the 20% down and the 25% down and the stock one. Okay, you do make it there. And in case it's hard to read when you actually made it, this is the same chart, but it's showing you how many months it took to go into phase two. So re- me reaching that first goal of getting out of phase one, working toward your minimum target monthly income to have enough where you can actually fire, it's lean fire, but it's fire. And so how long does it take you to get there? This is like how long it takes you to get the lean fire. With the 2014 or 2015 Nomad, it's 242 months. With the 2021 Nomad, it's 357 months. And part of that is because you don't have enough money to acquire these properties every 12 months. It took you a longer time to acquire properties because they're more expensive. It's like a limitation because the properties are more expensive and your savings rate is relatively low. I think I have you saving like $500 a month. So $500 a month is not a lot to be saving to achieve this level of acquisition. You know, because I think I have you making like $5,000 a month. So it's like 10%. Okay. Um, Okay. And then here we go. 2021 stocks and one owner occupants. That took you 449 months. When you do the 20% down once, it's 453 months. When you do the 25% down, it's faster. It's 421 months. So it shows you how long it took you to get to lean FIRE. Um, I guess I didn't show any other charts. So this shows you your total true cash flow for all the different plans. So how much cash flow plus your cash flow from depreciation you have on all the properties. With the 2015 Nomad, you have about $30,000 a month by the time you're done. With the 2021, you have about $27,000 a month when you're done. With the uh, 25% down ones, you're about $22,000 a month. And with the 20% down ones, you're at 18. You don't have any cash flow from your rentals when you do only stocks because you only have stocks. You don't have any rentals. Okay, and if you adjust for inflation, the 2015 one is like having $9,000 a month in passive income today and realize you did this model earning $5,000 a month. So it's more than what your lifestyle was when you were working. You can adjust your own numbers and see what this looks like. And then 2021 numbers, you have about $8,400 a month and change. And this is also continuing to grow because all of your properties are not paid off yet. So realize because you delayed your properties acquiring them, it's you still have ones that could pay off. So this number will go up for that. And then doing the 25% down ones, it's almost $7,000 a month. With the 20% down ones, it's almost $5,700 a month from there. And this shows you the charts for doing this. These little blips are when you buy a property and you have one month where you do not have to pay your mortgage. That first month where you acquire property, there's a delay and you having to pay that mortgage. So you have a little blip and that's what those little blippy lines are for. You don't have it when you do the owner-occupant because you're not a rental when you buy the property. So you don't have the extra income. So it shows you those. See that over time? It's the same numbers from before. All I did is I showed you it over time. Then... This is a deceiving chart. It's deceptive. It's really deceptive. Actually, I I almost contemplated not including it, but I wanted to show you because you're looking at this. This shows you the cumulative, the sum of all the negative cash flows you've had uh, on your property. Uh, Once you've kind of taken into account the tax benefits, but you'll, you'll think to yourself, man, you know, there's not a lot of negative cash flow going on, even in the 2021 ones. But, James, you told me there was significant negative cash flow when we did the 2021 properties. Why isn't there, you know, this negative cash flow kind of starting in month 13 once we convert the first one to a property, convert the first property we bought to a rental? And the reason is because it took us a long time to be able to buy the next property to save up enough money to buy the second property so that we didn't have this negative cash flow for a long time. The longer you wait the more your rents have increased, the less negative cash flow you have for when you buy that next property. And so it turns out we didn't have a lot of negative cash flow because we delayed buying these properties for a much longer period of time. If we look back at as to how long it took us to acquire them, you can see here, we didn't actually buy the next, the second rental, the second property to move into and convert the first one to a rental till like month 51 or so. And by then it had positive cash flow. And then it took us like another almost four years in order to buy the next one and have three properties. And then these times got shorter and shorter, such that it was it wasn't until we got to like right in here or so that we started to have some negative cash flow at all, right? So that's why this chart is deceptive, because if you really did have an extra some extra savings or um, you know some money sitting aside where you could buy these properties much faster, then you would have this negative cash flow earlier and it would contribute. But even so, even with like the slow kind of working through this thing and, and taking your time to do this, the negative cash flow for all for acquiring all ten properties combined is less than thirty thousand dollars for all of them when you're doing that. And when you buy the twenty percent down ones, you still have a little bit of negative cash flow, which we talked we talked about before. So that's this little negative cash flow here. That's less than thousand dollars. It looks like maybe maybe close to a thousand over here. But when you do the five percent down ones. And using today's numbers as nomad dead 2021. You know, you'd have you have negative cash flow later on. And if it was earlier, it'd be more, but still, part of it, part of your negative cash flow is you're not putting more down. You only put 5% down. So you're really deferred down payment over time. Okay. All right. Total equity shows you this. You have more equity with 2021 because they're more expensive properties. So your equity is uh, 7.7 with 2015 nomad. million with uh, 2021 Nomad, about 10 million and change for both the 25 and 20% down. And then uh, you only have the equity in the owner-occupant property when you do stocks. If we adjust, oh, actually, I said I didn't do inflation adjusted. I did total true net equity if you actually had expenses on your property when you did it. And it shows you what the numbers for true net equity. You can go look at that if you want to, but I'm not going to cover it. Okay. This shows you your total mortgage balances over time. Jason says, James should teach one class a year now. This one. (laughs) Right? Because it compares like what reality is now to what it was whenever we were thinking about it. All right. This shows you your total mortgage balances. The red line shows you the numbers from 2015. So you were acquiring properties relatively quickly. And you got up to the point where you had your 10 properties. It was under $3 million in total mortgage balances. And then over time, you're paying those off. And so it's just sort of declining. And you're almost completely paid off of all mortgages by the time you get to 40 years. Because you were pretty much done buying properties at 10 years. It takes 30 years to pay them all off. Okay, With the 2021, though, because you acquired properties more slowly, you ended up having a much higher mortgage balance total. And they're not even close to being paid off by the time you still owe $2 million on this, you know, almost $2 million by the time you get to your 40. And the 20% down, the 25% down is even worse because you can't buy properties as quickly because you got to save up more money. You got to save up 20% or 25% to get to these. And you can see that here, okay? And then of course, the one where you just bought stocks, you just bought the one property to live in and you paid off your mortgage after 360 months and then you don't have a mortgage at all that shows you your mortgage balances over time. Okay. All right. I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, all right, that's like the slow way. It is a slow way. I mean, that's the traditional nomad model. You buy properties, you let the tenants pay them off. You don't pay them off more. You don't pay them off faster. You don't sell off any properties. You don't, pay off mortgages if you can fire early or do anything crazy like that. You just slow and steady wins the race, kind of like work it through. Uh, this is not intended to be in any way a full class on speeding it up or doing anything like that. I've already taught tons of classes on that. I'm sure I'll, uh, well, I guess I won't teach any more classes. So I, I shouldn't say that. So um, maybe I'll teach classes on speeding it up in the future or maybe I'll do, I don't know, who knows what's going on. With that being said, there's other stuff you can go reference for speeding it up. But I did want to show you a couple things. So this is that chart from before where I showed you how long it took you to get to lean FIRE, essentially. Minimum target monthly income and retirement. And this is all the old ones. to so 2015, it took you 242 months to get there. In 2021, doing regular Nomad it took you 357 months. But I added a couple extra ones. I added these two to the bottom. In 2021, if you sell properties to pay off mortgages to achieve financial independence. So if you get to the point where If you sell off some of your properties, you could pay off the other ones that you own and that would get you to your minimum target monthly income retirement, then do that. And how long does it take you to get there? Well, it turns out that that takes 293 months for you to get to the point where you have enough equity where you could sell off your properties, you pay capital gains, you pay depreciation recapture, you pay your your, uh, closing costs, you pay your real estate commissions, you, you subtract all those out. So it's really a net dollar amount that you really walk away with. You take that money, you pay off the remaining mortgages on the rental properties you own, and you get to fire. You get to the point where that is enough so that you have a minimum target monthly income retirement to support yourself, lean fire, another way of saying that. And that takes 293 months using this strategy. And that's still with you acquiring them slower right? Because you're not able to acquire them very quickly. So it still takes 293 months. Now remember, in 2015, it took you 242. It's 293 now. And that's faster than the 357 if you didn't do this. I don't know. That seems like a reasonable, uh, kind of a reasonable timeline to do this, right? For saving basically 10% of your income. I don't know. That seems pretty good to me. And then this last one is, if you sell off all of your properties... And you use the proceeds to invest in the stock market and you had the money in the stock market produce a, I use 4% safe withdrawal rate. So instead of having rentals, you have 4% safe withdrawal rate and the money is all in the stock market. Now it takes you 291 months to get to the point where you have enough equity in your properties after capital gains, depreciation, recapture closing costs or transaction costs, real estate commissions. So the net you take away you put into the stock market. And if you took a 4% safe withdrawal rate, that would allow you to have your minimum target monthly income for retirement. Took you 291 months to do that, okay? Which is a couple months faster than selling off some properties to pay off the other ones and do it with rentals. Some people would prefer to have free and clear rentals when they retire. Some people would prefer to have their money in something else like the stock market. And it could be anything else. I just happen to use the stock market as an example, okay? Any questions on this? Now, this one is the minimum target monthly income retirement. This is lean fire. This, though, is your ideal target monthly income in retirement, which is a higher dollar amount. I think I use 10K a month. I think I use $10,000. I think this is five. I think this is the point to get to $5,000 a month. I think this is the point to get to $10,000 a month. And you can see that. Um, how long it took you in 2015, 353 months in order to get to your 10K a month income, passive income uh, versus 2021 took you 417 months to get to 10K a month of passive income. And then here, the sell off the properties and chief fire, it actually took you longer to do it, 428 months and it took you longer, 460 months to do that. So it would have been better for you to just do the traditional plan here and get there. Okay. All right. Which, which, by the way, makes sense because you sold off your properties much earlier so that you could retire earlier. Like, I don't want to leave this here and have you guys think, well, why would I do it then? Because you actually got to retire in, two, in, in month 293, and then you still achieved 10K a month income by month 428. So it's a little bit longer to get to your 10K a month, but you still got to retire earlier than you did before. That's why you'd still do it, okay, in case that wasn't clear. All right. So, oh, actually, uh, someone who is on, I won't name their name, would appreciate this. So uh, a client of mine reached out to me. Uh, Let me answer the question and then I'll come back to the story. So CC says, why was it slower for the 10K per month? Because it took you longer. It took you this much time in order to get to the point where you had $10,000 a month coming in. This is the amount of time it took you to get to $5,000 a month coming in. So it's... You got here, and then you still need to go a long ways to get to 5K a month more, and so that's why it took longer to get there. If it's not clear, uh, ask me at the end for questions. We can talk about it some more. All right. So I had a client reach out to me, and they had said, "Hey, you know, I was I always was interested in these, uh, you know, condos in Heather Ridge. It's a certain neighborhood in Fort Collins, um, kind of a a lower price condo, a, a very inexpensive condo in northern Colorado." And so I thought to myself, you know, why not show what these lower price condos are in northern Colorado? Because you know, some people are scared away. They're like, "Man, I don't know. I, I can't afford income-wise a $440,000 property, James. I don't know. I, m- maybe I'm crazy, but I can't do it." No worries. So, here is lower price nomad, right? So there were nine condos listed or sold in Fort Collins in Heatherridge in 2021 in the last six months of this year. In what probably is the hottest, craziest market I think I've ever seen. There were six properties that were for sale. The one bedroom version sold between 163 and 180. A lot more reasonable, even more reasonable than this, than the 2015 Nomad book. The two bedrooms sold between 210 and 225. Still less expensive than this. And so here are the return on investment quadrants. I think this is the one bedroom one. This is the two bedroom one. I just did Brian's spreadsheet to kind of show that. And so you could see this is the appreciation. This is the appreciation of those. This is the cash flow numbers. It's still negative cash flow. This doesn't solve your negative cash flow issue because the rents we're getting on these is commensurate with a one bedroom or two bedroom. Okay. So the cash flow is still negative, but. It's a lot less for you to get in. It's 5% of these prices instead of 5% of 440 to do it, okay? So I guess what I'll talk about this is, and and oh the overall return, I'll do that, and I'll talk about what I want to talk about. So the overall return was 45.3, still pretty good, and this return was 50.7. Not bad at all. And so what I was going to say is this, right? And this sort of relates to what's coming about the Learn Helplessness. But I'll, I'll, I'll say it here and then maybe I'll give you a break and, and I'll come back a little firmer, a little harsher, um, a little a, a little bit more direct later on when I talk about Learn Helplessness and some of these things. So here's what I'll say. Start where you are. If you're, if you're in the income or down payment savings or whatever it is, where Heather Ridge is what makes sense for you based on where our market is, then start here. Don't like get, don't, Decide not to do anything, or get frozen because you can't do these four hundred and forty thousand dollars new construction properties. Do what you can. Now you may say to me, "But James, you know, I don't want a one bedroom property. I don't want a two bedroom property. I really want a, you know, six bedroom property with a swimming pool and you know horses and and uh, and three acres on Mountain Avenue in Fort Collins. And I, uh, you know, it has to be all brick and have like character and be on the National Historic uh, kind of like property thing. You know, and I want to pay less than hundred thousand dollars for that." Yeah. See, start where you are. You can want all these other things, but if that's not what you can afford, then that's not what you can afford. So do what you can. And if it means making a decision to live in a property that's, you know, 180,000 or 225,000 or whatever it is in order to start down the road of achieving your goals, then you do that. So that's what I would say. Uh, Kevin says he sold off houses to reach a minimum retirement income then. So then you're limping into the ideal income limit. That's correct. Yep. That's another way of saying it, Kevin. Yep. You're right. Okay. So why nomad? And, and I should be clear. You know, I did include examples of 20% down and 25% down. I didn't do like all the creative financing stuff or all these different alternative investing strategies, but a lot of what I said tonight could be easily just as easily applied to any other real estate investing strategy. You know, the fact that property values went up and interest rates went down and rents didn't go up quite as much a lot of what i've been saying applies to all these other strategies 20 down 25 down 30 down buying properties all cash like the same stuff applies okay but why nomad in particular well one of the reasons we tend to look at nomad is it's a lower amount of down payment needed to get started than many other real estate than many other real estate investing strategies so with, with a lot of other strategies, you need 20% down or 25% down. If you only need to save up 5% in order to start acquiring properties, that happens a lot faster, okay? You can do it with nothing down. So if you don't have any down payment, but you've got good income, you can go to Severance. You can go to Windsor. You can go to Wellington. And there are nothing down loan programs. USDA, VA, if you happen to be a veteran, um, you could do some of these like local banks have nothing down loan programs. There's definitely restrictions. You got to be able to qualify for the loan. Uh, has to be within a certain range of price. you got to have a certain amount of income. So there's and, and a lot of times, depending on the loan program, it has to be in a certain area, but you can do it with nothing down. You know, someone else mentioned 3% down earlier. You can do with 3% down. But I think a lot of folks are going to be doing it when they're 5% down. That's what we typically model. And so it's a lot easier to save up 5% than 20%. So that's one of the reasons why we do it because you can acquire properties faster and then the market is working in your favor. If you weren't in the market, in that little honeypot neighborhood I had at the beginning, and you didn't see 100K in equity increase on the properties you bought the year before to this year, it's then it's problematic. That's why it's better to have the 5% be in the market and kind of acquire that. So as opposed to saving 15 or 20 or 25% down for most other traditional real estate strategies, Nomad is better because you can require less down, which means you can acquire properties faster. The other nice thing I think about Nomad is, you do it once, you buy a single property, you catch your breath, you evaluate, you take a year off, you decide what you want to do, you study and you can make a decision. Should I do this again? Or I was crazy. I don't know what I was thinking. James James must've kind of talked me into some crazy voodoo magic and he doesn't have to do it, which I, I'll say this too. You know, this, I'm in a really interesting position because I have almost zero incentive at this point to not tell you the truth, right? Like you could argue for the last, since 2003, what is that? 18 years that I was induced I was incentivized to sort of like encourage you to buy houses because how do these classes are largely free. I may charge them in the future. So if you're listening to this, you paid money for it. Thank you very much. But at the time we're teaching them, they're free right now, right? And the reason why they're free is I was educating you, providing you great information and tools and resources with the hope that some small percentage of you would decide to buy a house with me, with me as your real estate broker, and I would make Seven, eight, nine, ten, thirteen, fifteen thousand dollars whatever it was, 3% of whatever the price of the house is, is pretty typical in our marketplace. So go ahead and multiply that out. You know, $400,000 property. I was being paid $12,000 to help you buy a house. That was incentivizing me to encourage you to buy properties, right? This is like not a secret. I mean, it's not like hidden. It's not something I always talk about, but guess what? I'll take a sabbatical. So I have like no incentive to sell you on this. I can tell you the truth. And the truth is, still what I'm telling you. So it doesn't matter. I'm not incentivized to tell you this anymore. I can tell you exactly what the truth is. And this is still the truth. It's not like I'm being compensated anymore. Okay. All right. Do it once, catch your breath, you evaluate, you decide if you want to do it again next year. That's up to you. You get to choose. You get to look at the market and evaluate. Can I get my X percent of the market? Thank you, Bob and Barbie. I I do appreciate that. I, I feel like I've always told the truth, but you know there is an incentive for me to like, I don't know, not tell you the bad stuff. But I, I mean, I do, but there you go. Yeah, likely story. The timeshare pitch is coming. <laughs> oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Okay, so you get to decide after you evaluate whether or not you wanna do it next year or not. Um, another reasons why I like Nomad over the other investment strategies is you get better interest rates than non-owner occupant. Just the interest rates are better. There's no due on sale or due on transfer clause issues like if you did creative real estate investing, uh, which you could still do with little down I means it's, it's another little down strategy, but there's other problems with that strategy. And you could typically acquire typically acquire assets faster if you're saving up down payments when you only have to save 5% than if you have to save 15, 20, 25, which means your acquisition speed is compressed which means you now have the market working in your favor or against you if the market goes against you. But you typically have the market working in your favor because you have a larger asset base to work from. Uh, So there are exceptions to this, but if you have an exceptionally high savings rate or a large asset base to start, then this doesn't apply as much because you're really just deploying assets at that point much faster. Okay. So we've talked about this concept a lot tonight. You know, what's the alternative if you're not going to do Nomad? And, And I wanted to talk about this concept of learned helplessness because I, th- I think it's relevant. It's, it's probably been relevant this whole time, but I thought this class really dragged it out of me, drug it out of me, whatever the correct verb tense of that is. Um, CC says, I feel like the biggest barrier to Nomad is the bank refusing to fund after the second one with the justification that you're building out your portfolio. All right, uh, so CC, for your benefit, uh, any Nomads that are on that have bought more than one property Please tell CeCe about your experience. Did the bank tell you or give you any hard time about acquiring the property? I'm not going to prompt you. Uh, please go ahead and tell CeCe and, and she can do this. And, and CeCe, this, this section on learned helplessness is for you. Okay, so there you go. The whole bunch of people that are talking there. All right, learned helplessness. This is a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Learned helplessness is the giving up reaction, the quitting response that follows from the belief that whatever you do, doesn't matter I'll, I'll even add to it it's like it's the fears that prevent you from doing the things that you probably should do you know you've you've learned you've conditioned yourself to be helpless to not seek action and do that okay so i don't know if that helped you in cc but there's a couple people at least telling you that it's not an issue here's another quote from elon musk thinking in probabilities which is related to this Outcomes are usually not deterministic. They're probabilistic. So it's not like a linear, you do this, you get this. It's like you do this, you are likely, or you there's a chance this will happen, or there's a chance this will happen, there's a chance this will happen, there's a chance this will happen. And here's the results for each one of these different options. And here's what I think the possibility of this happening A is, the possibility of what this happening B is, and the possibility of this happening C is. Uh, that's kind of like my uh, kind of, expounding on uh, Elon Musk quote there he continue on with him though but we don't think that way we don't think probabilistically the popular definition of sanity you've, you've probably heard this before doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result that's only true in a highly deterministic situation if you do this you get this however if you have a probabilistic situation where you don't control all the output of oh, I have that which most situations are. This is Elon saying that. Then, if you do the same thing twice, it can be quite reasonable to expect a different result. So, if you go and you buy properties in the same neighborhood and you buy four in a row or five in a row, which they've all been able to do, CC, this is for you, loan, loan issue, and there's lots of people saying that they've not had a problem with it, um, and this is a small sampling. We usually see about. One tenth to one twentieth of the people that listen to stuff actually on live. So if you want to get an idea. Um, and I've not had any problems with it. Like never had zero, I've had zero clients have an issue with it, but maybe it's maybe you, maybe there is someone out there who's had an issue with it. Um, so anyway, continuing on. I forget what I was saying here. Uh something, 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 expecting different results. All right, I don't know what happened. We'll we'll come back to it. All right, so here's some stuff on expected value expected value. So I, we've taught this in other classes, this idea of expected value and making bets where your, your chances of success are good. They're in your favor. That's positive expected value, positive EV. Uh, expected value is the sum of all the possible values that you could get from this. So in this situation, I could lose all my money. In this situation, I could make $10,000. In this situation, I can make $100,000. In this situation, I could have a million dollars or whatever it is. Oh, I know what I was going to say over here. Let me finish this thought and I'll try to go back. So it's a sum of all those results multiplied by the probability of the occurrence of each one of those results. So I have a 10% chance that I could lose all my money. I have a 15% chance that I could make $10,000. I have a 20% chance that I could make $100,000. I have a 40% chance that I could make $500,000. And I have a 10% chance of making a million dollars. If you multiply the probability, the percentage chance you have times that dollar amount and you add up all of those, that is the overall expected value calculation. It tells you what And if if you could, if you could have all of these results happen to you in the proportion that the chance of it happening to you would happen, this is what your outcome would be on average. That's what it means. Okay. So going back here. So what I was going to say, CC, before I got distracted is um, if you, if you were like one of my clients who bought in this kind of like honeypot neighborhood where they bought a property and then it went up 3%, then went up 4%, went up whatever it is. I don't think a lot of them were thinking to themselves hey, listen, you know, by year four, we're going to see a 25% or 28% increase in any properties that we bought at this point. I don't think any of them had that in their kind of like probability part of that. I think a lot of them thought, hey, listen, you know, I'm going into this. I think there's a good chance we'll see 3%-ish appreciation, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. There is a chance that the market could go down, but I'm ready to go buy another house and get that one at a discount the next year if I go and do this. But you had to be in the market in order to have that really small chance probability for you to see 100K times however many houses they ended up buying in that neighborhood. So you got to be ready to do all that stuff. Yeah, Roy says, Thinking in Bets, the book, does a good job talking about EV if others haven't read it. Yep, agreed. Okay, so expected value, continue on here. So positive EV, a positive expected value where you've taken all of these probabilities and multiplying by your expected results and having that number be positive, even a really big positive number, does not guarantee that you will be successful. It doesn't mean that you won't lose money. It means that if you could go live all these parallel universes that you would make money, but it doesn't actually mean that you're guaranteed success. You can have a positive expected value. You can do the right thing. You can make the right decisions investing and you can still lose money. You can get in your car and drive down the road, be on the right side of the road, be doing the speed limit, be wearing your seatbelt, be paying attention, have the radio off, have the telephone off, and you could still get in a car accident and die. Right? You you could have positive EV and still do poorly. Right, you can also have negative EV and make money. You can actually have too much to drink. You could be talking on your cell phone, you could be putting your makeup on, you could be eating a cheeseburger, you could be having the music blaring, you could be, you know, snorting a line of cocaine, you could be swerving all over the yellow line on the other side of the road, off the curb, getting like that rumble feeling. You could go into the grass and come back up onto the road and do that. You can make it home safe and. That would have been a negative EV type of situation, but you could survive it. And that's what's hard. You could actually decide to invest in dog money or Bitcoin and you could make money when, I'm not saying it is because I don't know, but you could actually look at all the probabilities of you making money with Bitcoin and decide, this is not a good EV bet. This is a negative EV bet. Like I shouldn't do this, but you can invest in it and actually crush it. You can make money with it. And that's what's hard about this. You know, to kind of use my example, you can drive to work and get in an accident and you could die. Most times you go to work, you arrive safely and you earn wages for that day. It has a positive EV because your probability of being able to get to work safely and earn money at that job is really high. But you could actually have that very small percent chance where someone does something stupid or you accidentally do something stupid and you end up dying. There's no like riskless things you do in life. So regardless of what real estate investing strategy you're, you're doing, you know, consider what the chances are for a variety of outcomes and what the results would be for those outcomes. And I know for someone who is just getting started, this is really hard to do. It's even, I, I don't know if it's, I, I, I would say this, there's a curve. When you don't know what you're doing, when you're brand new, I think it's really hard for you to estimate probabilities. I think when you have a little bit of knowledge, you think that you can predict probabilities really well, right? You, you, you start off and you realize, I don't know anything. You come to my classes for six months and you think you know everything and you think you can predict everything. And then when you come to classes for 10 years, you realize you cannot predict everything and you really don't know what's going on. I, and I think that's the weird curve. It's like, and I think you still need to try and say, I don't, there's a, there's a large part of this that I really don't know. It could be this, could be that. I, I don't know, maybe. Um, but I think you come for a short period of time, six months, a year, whatever it is. And you think, I know everything. I, I can predict this very accurately. 10% of the time, it's going to be this. 20% of the time, it's going to be this. 30% of the time, it's going to be this. And I'm good. I know all the probabilities. I know exactly how this is going to go down for me. Maybe. I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think I could do that, right? So, so I, I guess- try to though i think it's worth the exercise of sitting down and saying okay i'm gonna do this nomad thing what could happen to me i could lose everything sure i mean you get hit by a meteorite and you could die right i mean there's low probability chances that you could do that figure out what you think the chance of that happening is Or this could happen to me, you know, it could go up just kind of slow and steady. Or I could see another 28% year, which I think is a really low probability sort of thing, but possible to do it. We could see massive inflation, you know, all these different things could happen. And then look at it and say, does this still make sense probabilistically? You know, given an infinite number of times to try this, would I be successful doing this? Or what's the alternative? What would I do if I didn't do this? And is that better than my decision to do, no matter whatever other strategy you're considering? okay? Your assumptions matter when you do this, right? But historical data suggests property values and rents over any reasonable period of time, they tend to go up. Will they go up next year? No idea. Can they go down next year? Absolutely. Can they go up next year? Absolutely. Can they stay the same next year? Absolutely. But give me enough time, looking back at history, I would be on the betting side of property values and rents are probably going up, Inflation and other factors, but I think inflation is a major factor in that. Okay. So do that. When I do math in the real estate financial planner software, when I do modeling and things of that nature, and the, the average of the Monte Carlo runs that you do, that's technically an EV calculation, right? You're running this thing 100, 500, 1,000 times, whatever it is. And you're saying, okay, there's one out of a 1,000 chance that it does this dollar amount, and one out of a 1,000, it does this dollar amount. You take that times a thousand and you add up all the numbers that literally is an ev calculation you do the average of all of them that's your ev for that entire run okay Um, it tends to be overwhelmingly positive are there times when you run this scenario that it becomes negative yep yep sure is and your assumptions matter a lot as to whether or not it shows negative and how negative it shows okay so what is your alternative for achieving whatever goal that you're trying to achieve with this nomad or real estate investing strategy that you're considering. You know, if if you're saying, hey, listen, I wanna retire early or I wanna hit financial independence. Maybe it's not even retire, maybe it's retire on time or not too late because you're starting pretty late. You know, just, I I just don't wanna go to 75. I want, you know, I wanna try to do this before 75 and I'm starting at 45 or 50 and I gotta get caught up. So how can I do this in 25 years? Which it's not fast anymore, it's like on time because I started late, right? So what is your goal that you're trying to achieve? And what are the options you could do? Okay, I could do Bitcoin. I could bet it all on Bitcoin possibility. I could go to the casino and bet it all on Black 12. And if I hit Black 12, I get 36 times my money or 35 times my money. If I don't hit it, I lose everything. I could do this Nomad thing. I could buy 20% down rentals. I could buy 25% down rentals. I could go learn to trade options or you know whatever it is that you're considering, Lay them out in front of you, say, okay, what's my odds of doing this here? What's my chance? What's my return? What's the probability I'll do well here? Prob- probabilistically, Elon Muskish, sort of think about what are my chances of being successful? Not that I'm automatically going to be, but doing that, okay? And then figure out if you don't do, no matter whatever else, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's different? So how do you feel? I think this is my last slide. This is the learn helplessness part of this if you think to yourself, hey, listen, nothing I do matters, so why bother? What does that say? So there's a psychological concept. I've been been hinting at this and I sent it in the email. And If you guys click through, you probably saw this, but there's this concept of learned helplessness. And I'm gonna butcher the explanation for it because I'm not a psychologist, I'm not teaching this. So realize that what I tell you may be slightly wrong, but the idea is sound, okay? So they do these these science experiments. They put a, a puppy, and a dog in, in a kind of like crate with a metal frame, metal thing bond on the bottom where they could apply electric shocks. I know it's mean, don't get mad at me. They did it. it wasn't me doing it. So they had these dogs in this electric, these little things and they had a little electric thing on the bottom that could shock them. And they would, they would. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different groups but basically they showed that the dog would get shocked and there's really nothing the dog could do. It couldn't get out, it couldn't jump up anywhere. And so these dogs eventually came to realize that it was, it was futile for them to do anything. They, so they basically started lying down and every time the shot came on for like a second or something like that, they just whimpered. It was very sad. They didn't want to do anything. But they, they learned that there was nothing they could do. And it, it's to the point where even if the bottom thing was shocked and one side of it was on a shocking thing and the other side was not a shocking thing, like the other, they divided it with a little thing and they could jump over if they wanted to. They decided, the dogs learned that even if they jumped over, It didn't matter, right? Like they they would still get shocked if they jumped over. But then eventually they turned off one side and the dog was on one side and they shocked them. And if the dog didn't think that it was even worth them trying to jump over, even though if they had jumped over, this other side wasn't being shocked anymore, they still wouldn't do it. They gave up. They learned to be helpless. They learned that there's nothing I could do. It doesn't matter what I do. So I'm not going to try anything at all. And I've since read that you, you have to actually learn, help fullness. It's the default state is helplessness. You actually have to learn that you can do something to lift yourself up out of the stuff that's going on for you. So to to be even more complicated, learned helplessness is not technically true. That's the default state for most animals and for humans because, you know, that we're similar stuff, right? So it's really, you have to learn that you have agency over your choices and things, choices you make and things you do matter. Okay. So that's it. Um, let's see here. <laughs> People are recommending books. And she says, every home, every deal, every tenant, every year teaches me something new about no rentals. Absolutely. And I learned a ton from clients. They tell me about something. I'm like, I've never seen that before. That's new. Uh, Mike says, like fake cattle grates painted on the road stops cows from crossing the paint. Yeah. Yeah, there's a story, I don't know if this is true, but there's a similar story about elephants where they like attach a little thing to the elephant's thing and they stake them in the ground when they're young and they learn that they they can't move them, they can't pull it out and so do that. And so eventually the elephant becomes full grown and they can put this little thing on their ankle and put a little tiny stake in the ground and the elephants just assume that it's like fully in there they stop trying to pull it out there. So something like that. I don't know if that's true uh thatcher says so what or who is the alternative to james Orr for those that are just getting started yeah go download the podcast today listen to all that stuff sabrina says james it's somewhat unrelated question to your topic tonight how can i deduct or depreciate my tax during the repairs and renovations i put into the owner occupy when i do no i don't think you can i don't think that's something you can do maybe there's a tax person out here but for owner occupant i don't think you can actually uh, deduct it Royce, I think one of the most powerful mindsets is to know you're going to lose money. Make yourself understand that it's a reality and what you can do to minimize it and then take action anyways. Keep your seats and add to the value of the property when it becomes a rental. Yeah, so Royce says do that. I didn't think you could. Maybe there's a tax professional on who's willing to share that with you. Otherwise, ask your uh, taxpayer. Okay, so continue on with this stuff, right? So how do you feel? Nothing I do matters. so why bother? If you feel that way, that's an issue, right? Like that's gonna prevent you from taking action. It's gonna prevent you from even trying. So, you got to get over that. You got to realize hey, look, maybe it's a small percentage chance, but if there's a small percentage chance and the reward is big enough, that might still be worth doing. Might I still fail? Absolutely. But what's the alternative? Look at all of your choices and say, I'm going to do something. It may not be a, a 100% guaranteed result but I'm gonna take action in the one that is most likely to be successful for me. And maybe you choose to do a higher probability with a lower reward because you've you believe maybe incorrectly, maybe correctly, it depends on you, but maybe you believe that that is better for you to have a higher probability of getting a little bit at least than to go for it and to do a lower probability of success, but a much bigger outcome. And you get to decide whatever that looks like for you. If you feel, hey, look, I tried that already, it didn't work. Yes, we, we all fail at things. I mean, if you listen to the class, I don't remember when I did it. It was earlier this year. I talked about like the, the 20 stupidest things I ever did or what I wish I knew before I invested in, like before I started investing in real estate. And I was pretty open about like, I've had some significant setbacks and failure. Okay. So I, I fail. I mean, I make bad investments. I don't always make money on stuff. Sometimes I do things and they don't work. Ask, ask Jason, he'll tell you, I do a lot of things that don't work, you know, but I still get up there and do that. And I think the thing is you need to do that too and you need to be willing to take risks. And you know, Royce just basically said, you know, I'm gonna lose money. Be prepared for that. Uh, rising interest rates are killing all the deals. If, if ever there was a reason to buy now, it's interest rates are at all time lows. Right. So you're going to complain to me a year. Well, maybe not to me. I may not be around, but a year, two, three, four, five years from now, you're going to say, I should have bought all those houses when interest rates were at 3%, because now they're at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, whatever they're at. Right. So you think that all these deals or you you think to yourself, I shouldn't even buy the first property because interest rates are going to go up. And this is unsustainable. If interest rates go up to five, six, seven, eight, nine percent, I put it in the calculator. This this is not going to work. I shouldn't even buy one property. I shouldn't even do it. Bad. That's bad decision making. Right. You do one based on what it is today. You can evaluate then whether it makes sense to do the next one. And I think in a lot of cases, it's still going to make sense because even if you get in a bad interest rate, if interest rates happen to go back down, then you could lower your interest rate, do a refinance and improve the deal. Otherwise, you just hold on to it. You got that low and it's not getting any worse than that. Okay. Home prices are too high to make my plan work. I think that's, that's largely what spurred on this class is these home prices have gone up like crazy in that particular market. So if you're looking at it and you're saying, "Hey, look, these are these deals are ugly compared to what they were," yes, they were. They are ugly. Cash flow is not pretty right now. It's not good. I mean, you could move to a different market. Maybe you could find better cash flow in another market. Maybe you can do something else. I mean, who knows? But what's the alternative? And is the overall return you're getting still worth doing? I don't know. I I thought those returns still looked pretty decent to me, but maybe it's different for you, right? Uh, rents aren't high enough to make my numbers work. Yep. <laughs> this is like what we've been talking about. It's, it, But, you know, go ahead and ask the people on the call or your friends who are like successful real estate investors. You know, how do your properties that you bought five years ago or 10 years ago, how are the rents on those compared to what you paid for them? They look amazing. You know, the rents on a property you bought five years ago, that's like phenomenal numbers. I mean, you basically have the purchase price from back then and the numbers today for rents. That's crazy good. Right? You know, but but right now you're like making a decision. You're like, this is ugly. Yes, I totally agree. But I think you have to be like the dog and be willing to jump and see is the other side electrified? And if there's a chance, or maybe I push on the wall, or maybe I bark and they'll let me out. I mean, who knows? Right. You gotta try something. And if that doesn't work, you gotta try again. You know, there's like the famous thing. I think Tony Robbins sort of made this famous, but that's where I heard it from. It's like, you know, how long would you give your average baby to learn how to walk? Well, I'm going to let them try three times. If they can't get it after three times, then we're done. They're not going to try anymore. We're just going to let them remain seated in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. They're not going to walk. No. You always let them get back up and keep trying. If something doesn't work, if they fall down, if they hit something, they knock their head, they start crying. You let them do it again. You're gonna make mistakes. Things are gonna happen that were unexpected. You know, you're gonna have property values go up 28% in a year that you already own. Great. You're also gonna have property values go down. You're gonna have rents go down. You're gonna have tenants that destroy your properties. You know, these things happen. It's it's inevitable. I talk about this kind of like idea of your shoelace comes untied. It's not a big deal. You don't stress out over it. You bend over, you tie your shoelace, you stand back up, you continue walking. If it comes untied again, you do it again. If your tenant doesn't pay rent, that's fine. You go call the attorney, you do an eviction, you get them out of the property, you do whatever repairs you need to, to do the turn. You put a new tenant in there. It's like tying your shoelace. It's got to be that second nature. Okay. Sure. It worked for him or her when they got started. There were deals then, but there aren't any deals now. I, I'm a, I'm an amateur collector of antique real estate investing books. I try to go find like these old books from the 80s or the 70s or whatever it is where you're reading about what deals looked like then and like how they were and you know all that other stuff and i I look back at all these old books and they had the same problems we had. It's like trying to make properties cash flow and all these different like gyrations that they're going through in order to get a property to cash flow. You when you're when you're in an interest rate market where interest rates are at like 17 percent or 18 percent, you're like trying to figure out how to make a property cash flow. It's the same thing we're dealing with today. It's just a different end of the deal. Instead of having 18 percent interest rates, now we got prices that are like 10 times as high as they used to be back then, but interest rates are like one seventh, right? yeah there isn't anything new under the sun it's all the same stuff okay it's just different variations different rhyming schemes on the same song okay so you can't like look back and compare yourself to oh i wish i was james's client when they bought into this neighborhood and they did it they didn't know they were getting that deal when they when they signed up for this they thought, maybe I'll do 3% a year. Maybe the property values would go down. I mean, back then, the the property the, the market looked frothy five years ago. Like, we thought we might be at a peak. We thought, hey, look, you know, I don't know if this is sustainable. Market's been going up for a while. This was not like the beginning of an uptrend. This was like in the middle of a hot market. And they started buying. They're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it'll continue to go up. Maybe it'll go down a little bit. We really don't know. They had risk. I mean, if anyone's willing to share, because I know there are some clients that were in those neighborhoods at that time, or even other neighborhoods, like, was it, were you a little bit fearful then? Like, did you have, I don't know what was going on in the market. Maybe the market will go down. Was it risky for you? I think it was, you know, like, did you have these same fears where, yeah, I mean, I wish I had started five years ago when these numbers were better. I think even then, five years ago from today, people were thinking that. That's what my experience has been. You know, the market is moving too fast for me to make this work. Yeah, totally. (laughs) This happens all the time. Market's moving fast all the time, you know? Yeah, see, yeah, even Eddie's like, I had to bid over asking on both properties and was scared to hell. (laughs) Totally, right? It was like fearful. Like we didn't know what was going on there. Jason's, I thought it was insane what I paid for a Michigan in severance in 2019. But now, yeah, Jason's like, it looks really cheap. It's like, I should have bought 10 of those things. We don't know. And at the time- everyone was in fear yeah yeah other people are like amen jason always risk not worth doing if it's a slam dunk Uh, yeah prices or rents are going to fall i mean how many people think that my markets it's too bubbly i mean i'm gonna step on my own toes for the class coming up but are we in a market bubble is the market going to crash i don't know no one knows so could could prices come down could rents come down sure but if you're buying today and then prices go down. You get to buy at a discount the next one. If, if rents go down, great. You get to buy at a discount the next one. You're, you're kind of like buying down into the thing. And then eventually things turn around. Yep. I can't save down payments fast enough. Yeah, I hear you. It's always hard to save down payments. I definitely struggle with that. I struggle with that today. Right? I mean, there's not, I don't have infinite money. And I like having really big reserves. So I still have problems with that. And so do a lot of other people. You know, my wealthiest clients I have all have challenges with that. It is not a poor person challenge. So get over it because it's not unique to you. Got to do stuff about it. All my wealthiest clients, they do stuff about it. They're actively trying to figure out ways to increase the money that they have to invest. It's, it's an ongoing problem. I can't find deals. Yep, welcome to the club. This has always been the case. You know, the the only exception I will have is like 2008, 2009, there was a surplus of deals, but no one had confidence. Very few people had confidence to invest during what seemed like the end of the world, the worst real estate market of our lifetime. You know, a a massive global real estate depression. There were a lot of deals back then. You know, it was, it was like, then it was like, what's the best deal? (laughs) You know, you were like it was it was sifting and sorting instead of trying to find what's the least bad deal or what's the least negative cash flow deal, at least in our market right now. I mean, maybe you're in a different market, but what's the least negative cash flow deal I could do right now? Before then it was like, well, there's 14 ones to choose from. Which one should I pick? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's all I got. I think you gotta take action, you gotta do something. Um, and you know you got to realize, you got to recognize and name in yourself: Am I displaying symptoms of learned helplessness? Am I, am I not taking action and doing something? And it doesn't have to be nomad. Doesn't have to be twenty percent down rentals. Do whatever makes sense for you. I don't, I don't care. I mean, I'm, I'm basically done. I got one foot out the door, right? So that's what I will say to you: um, Do something. Figure out what makes sense for you and try something. Take action. You know, have agency over yourself and your decisions and your actions, and and do, m- make movements towards something and even if you're wrong you can correct it's easier to correct when you're in motion than to correct when you're sitting in fear and not doing anything that is all i have and so goes the third to last class or third uh, the three final classes we're down to two amazing class very good class i'm glad you guys like it mindset is critical well done to keep the movement going viva nomad well done excellent class i appreciate it guys so I hope you all enjoyed that. Any final questions? You are very, very welcome. Very, very welcome. Great class. Good philosophy. Always insightful. Thanks, James. Amazing. A look at all those exclamation points. Thank you very much. Thanks for the class. Love the format. Info. you are all very welcome. So that is all I have. Unless there's no party. No, nope, no party. I just decided to cancel it. It's like, this is like, what I imagine, I didn't quite have the normal senior year, I graduated high school a little early, but this is what I imagine senior year to be like when you're, you're accepted to college, all your grades are in, you've got that like sort of like last week where there's nothing really going on, the teachers have you like wiping down the cabinets in the science classroom and cleaning out the lab desks, and you know, it's like, it's like all that stuff. I feel like that's sort of this last week, like it's sort of like you're ready to go. And the weather is not helping. It's like triggering all those nostalgic sort of summer break sort of things. So I I think I'm sure sort of no ice cream. I might have ice cream tonight. I got ice cream downstairs, but probably not. So I want to sign your yearbook. Oh, that's pretty funny. I don't think I bought any yearbooks. I probably signed some other people's yearbooks. It'd be interesting to see what I wrote to some of these uh, people in their yearbooks. I don't remember any of that, but yeah, I'll uh, we'll have to see. Oh, you guys are all begging for the final class. I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll have to see how it goes. Right now there's no class. I decided to cancel it. In a, in a, a fit of just, yeah, I'm done. But we'll see. Love to see me and celebrate. Oh man. You do know that I'm an introvert, right? Like I have a, I struggle with that. Like, I don't know, getting out in public and stuff like that. Is this the end of your websites, real estate financial planner? Um, probably not, Donna. There, there's a probably better than better than 50% chance that I spin off real estate financial planner, the software as a paid business. Cause my guess, I don't know this for sure. My, there's a 10% chance. I'm like done, done, done. Everything's done. Close everything down. Never do anything else again. But my guess is that, especially since I've been doing this stuff for so long, and uh, I, I tend to think about work. I tend to think about business. I tend to read a lot of business books. Like all of my like fun stuff seems to be business related. The chance of me going from 100 miles an hour to zero seems unlikely. It's possible it could. I don't know. I'll know a lot more after taking three months off. Um, but my guess is that I probably will spin off the real estate financial planner business as like a, I don't know, a separate little entity. It's my guess. We'll see could do it at our house oh bob and barbie just volunteered their house oh that's pretty interesting that maybe <laughs> painting landscapes i did do a painting see i actually I, I did like a bob ross class i have a little thing i have to show it to you guys sometime it's like a snowscape you are welcome carlos thank you a lot james thank you a million for all your help support i've been learning a lot for you you're very welcome very welcome Brittany says just download all podcasts. wish i found a long time ago yep good stuff right Roy says, we'll call it beers with barbie i'm in <laughs> Oh, that's pretty awesome. Nick. Just stay on a teacher schedule. Take every summer off. There's a possibility. There's definitely a possibility. The challenge, Nick, is this, right? Like the monetization for teaching the classes is actually brokerage. And it's hard to be like part-time brokerage. It's just, it's tricky. Because if you need something and you're like, oh, but I'm buying in January this year. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm taking January off this year. That's hard for you. It's, it's tricky to do that. So I don't know. Goal is you take the tech startup journey. I, yeah, I, Jason, I don't want to give up ownership. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too stingy. You and I will have to talk about this. On the cruise. On the cruise. Yep. Uh, thank you Well, better for having your great effort. I appreciate that. Book recommendations. Um, you can read uh, the book I wrote for my son. It's uh, That'll probably come down soon. You should go download that. Uh, I'll type in the address. And then also probably The Millionaire Real Estate Investor is probably another good book. But here's the book I wrote for my son. You can go download this for free. Um, and that's probably a good starter book I, w- I would probably do two of those um, I can't tell you how much we've learned from you I appreciate that, that's very nice, very kind alright, well because I'm getting uh, mushy with all the love fest I think I might go 3K Nomad book is worth reading. Yeah, the 3K Nomad book is probably worth reading if you're planning on doing lease options or you want to get a better nuanced understanding of Nomad stuff. Uh, that's probably worth doing too. I don't know if that's available on the podcast or on the website. There, There is a, uh, a two hour version of it taught. There's several of it, but there's one on the podcast. You just go listen to that. I'd go download the podcast episodes like right away. I don't know if it's on Amazon, Jason. I really don't. But um, go d- you all should go download the podcast episodes because they are probably coming down. So please do go download those, enjoy those while you can. There's like 100 of the, I don't know, 300 classes or whatever it is that are there. And I might do, I might like do burrito pricing on classes and release those over time. So there's a possibility um, that you'll see the, you know, you could buy a copy of an old class for like 12 bucks or something like that. Basically the cost of buying a burrito. All right. If that's all we got, thank you all for coming. We're going to end on time. I do appreciate it. Uh, Looking forward to the last two classes and then we will be done. So uh, two more preps and then take some time off. So thank you all. I will talk to you all soon. Have a great night. Oh, someone's on my back porch. I gotta go. All right, cool. I will uh, talk to you all soon. Have a great night. Bye for now. With home prices up,